0: Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. When, If you ever have kids or when they're real little or if you're ever around kids who are little and you're, you're talking to them maybe in a teaching setting or just a conversation setting, one of the things that people like to ask kids is, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? When you become an adult, what do you want to be? And we've asked all of our kids that, and it's changed from time to time. Uh, Parker now, I, I feel silly asking him what do you want to be when you grow up because you're 17, but... Let's be honest, he's still got a lot of growing up to do. Uh, so does his dad. And so I ask him, what do you want to be when he, you know, I want to be a gamer when I grow up personally, so I still got time. Uh, but I ask him what he wants to be when he grows up and now, or what he wants to do when he goes to college. And he's leaning towards uh, doing nursing and getting in the nursing field. And so he's excited about that. I ask Connor what he wants to do and he wants to, he wants to be a missionary or be a pastor. And I tell him, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't do that that's a bad idea that's not what you want to do but anyway and Lexi she wants to be a mom now Lexi will either be a mom or the ruler of the world one of the two and if she's ruling the world we're in trouble I'm just gonna let y'all know that if Lexi comes to power hide because it's gonna get bad for everybody but we, we like to ask kids what they, used to, what they want to be. When I was a kid, I don't remember a lot of what I wanted to be when I grew up as a kid. I do remember when I was in high school that I decided I wanted to be a history teacher. Uh, I enjoyed history. I took AP history classes and uh, enjoyed learning about history. And so I decided I wanted to be a history teacher. And so I set my, col- my high school Uh, courses to become a history teacher. I chose a college that had a strong emphasis on teaching specifically history and English and so I I went to visit that college. It was Beaver College up in Pennsylvania right outside of Philadelphia. I was accepted there and they had a program where my junior and senior year, I could travel to teach as I learned. And so I could teach in places like Australia or Ireland. I could travel to uh, inner city schools or some rural areas to really get some experience as I taught. And I was, that's what I wanted to do. I was excited about that. That was my goal. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Of course, obviously, God had different plans, and I am not a history teacher. And now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is not telling us some things that we should want to be when we grow up in Christ. He's not talking to young Christians and saying, hey, as you mature in Christ, these are some things you should try to want to be. He is telling us what we are in Christ. Ephesians, of course, is a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very large very diverse city. It was considered a melting pot of the Mediterranean. It was a a port city, so a lot of people had had ships coming in for trade and for other things, but it was also a very sinful city. They had several temples to the goddess Diana, and they had, as a matter of fact, they had the largest temple to Diana in the world, in this city, and it was a, not just a, a temple to a goddess, it was a house of prostitution, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world, so it was a very large, very populous, very wicked city. And so Paul's writing to these believers to try to tell them how to live in a culture that is severely anti-Christian. And that's kind of the culture we're living in today. Our society today is strongly anti-Christian. They reject the things of God. They, they feel that people who try to teach the Word of God or teach the principles of God are oppressing, and we, we're trying to force our old-timey beliefs on people and trying to keep people back where they belong. And, and they've got all these views about Christianity. So we live in a, very, in a culture... That's severely anti-Christian. I mean, you just you turn on your TV. Every TV uh, station now has got shows that are just that just promote wickedness and glorify wickedness and sinfulness and debauchery. I mean, the Golden Globes were uh, last week, and uh, the moderator, uh, Randy Gervais, or Gervais or whatever his name is, uh, his his monologue. People thought it was hilarious because he's telling Hollywood how it is, but he's calling them out for their, their love of sinfulness, for them allowing sin to go on and allowing wickedness to go on. And so we live in a very anti-God culture. So as we study the book of Ephesians, we're seeing how Paul is telling us how we can thrive in our relationship with God in a culture that is decidedly anti-God. And so for the first three chapters, what Paul is doing is he is telling us who God says we are. And that's an important truth that every believer needs to understand. Too many of us, we view ourselves as we think that we are. We look at our life, we look at how the things that we struggle with, we look at the problems that we have, and we say, this is who I am. This is maybe, maybe you struggle with, with pornography and you think, well, this is what I am. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a sexual sinner. I'm a, I'm a pervert or whatever you want to call yourself. And so we, we put ourselves in these boxes. Maybe you struggle with reading your Bible. So you're like, I'm just, I'm a weak Christian. I'm a worthless Christian. I can't get anything done because we look at ourselves and we see our sin and say, well, that's, that's who I am. So how could God love me? How could God use me? How could God care about me? Because we, we, we like to look at characters in the Bible, and we kind of elevate them. I mean, most of them, they're in the hall of faith, for goodness sakes. You know, Hebrews chapter 11. You've got Moses and Noah and David. You've got all these great God giants of the faith in the hall of faith, but every single one of them was a broken person. I mean, Noah got drunk and does God only knows what with the sun in the tent we have no idea what happened in there but it was bad it was so bad God cursed an entire nation because of it, I mean, you got Lot, even Lot's in the, in the hall of faith. And Lot here was so tied down to Sodom and Gomorrah and so in love with the, the sinful lifestyle that the angels had to drag him and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah so they could destroy the city. And then he goes up into the mountains. His daughters get him drunk two nights in a row and, and have, have, have sex with him and have kids out with their father. It's just a, a terrible situation. And Lot's in the hall of faith. I, I believe most of us can look at Lot's life and say, I'm better than Lot. I didn't do that for goodness sakes. I mean, we got David, David was an adulterer and a murderer. We've got all these people that we, we look up and say, Man, they're they're giants of the faith, but when you study them, they all have flaws. And that's the point. God doesn't see you as your flaws. God sees you in an incredible way. And we've been looking at how God says what God says about us. And the greatest thing that can happen to us is for us to see ourselves as God sees us. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at an identity statement. here it is. This identity statement about the book of Ephesians. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father. And who I am is who I am in Him. Regardless of what you did this week, that is who you are as a Christian. Regardless of if you were faithful to your Bible reading plan every day and you got up and you read your Bible every day and you commented on the Bible plan and you prayed and you did right and you were, you were, you were walking with God this week or if you skipped your Bible every week, you got mad, you, you fell into sin, you messed up, you had a bad week. Just a t- No matter what your week was like, if you are saved tonight, that is who you are. It's not who you're trying to be. It's not who you're, who you're one day may achieve to be. It is who you are now. And so we begin to, through the book of Ephesians, uh, look at some of these incredible truths about what God says we are. We saw last week that we are chosen. God chose you. God loved you so much that before the foundation of the world God knew you would exist, he knew he would create you, he knew he would love you, and he chose you. Now, people ask all kinds of questions. If if God knew man was going to fall, why did he create us? I don't know. Ask God. His thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are above our ways, and so we can't understand the mind of God. I don't know why he would do it, but I know he did. I know he saw me long before I was ever born, long before anything existed. He saw me. He saw what I would be. He saw the sin I would get into. He saw as a teenager how I would would reject him and, and turn away from him and ignore him and say he didn't even exist. He knew all that. But he still chose me. And he chose you. We are adopted. We accepted Christ as our Savior. We are adopted into the family of God. That is such a, a adoption is such a, a precious picture of God's love for us. It shows his love and his generosity because adoption is, we said last week, you know, when you, ha- when you have children, husband and wife get together, they have children. And they, 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 of course, we love our kids, but you get, you get what you get. You know, whatever you bring from the hospital, what you're stuck with, that's what you have. But with adoption, you choose them. Out of all the kids in the world who are available, you choose them. And that's what God did for us. He chose us and adopted us into his family. Then we said that we were loved, accepted, and favored by God. That's who you are in Christ. It's not who you want to be. It's not who you hope to be. It's not Paul saying this is what you should work to be. Paul is saying if you're saved tonight... This is who you are. So we're going to continue looking at this this verse. Now remember, Ephesians chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek. It is the longest sentence in the New Testament. And so all these things that Paul's talking about until we get to verse 14 is one continuous thought, Paul saying what we are. So we're going to keep reading in verse number 7. Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according uh, to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed. In himself, that in the dispensation, the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, in these verses, we still see a few incredible truths about what God says, this is who you are in me. Here's the first one. In Christ, we are redeemed. Verse 7, it says, in whom we have redeemed. Redemption. Redeemed. Redemption. It's a word we use a lot of time in church. We even have songs about it. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So we sing these songs about redemption. We hear about redemption. We know the word redeemed. But what does it actually mean? The word redemption here in the Greek, it means deliverance from bondage by payment of a price. Redemption is a ransom being paid for someone to purchase them out of slavery. The Christians at Ephesus were very familiar with the, with the, the, the term and the, the, the concept of redemption. They were part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at one time had over 6 million people. Slaves in its empire. A lot of people in Ephesus either were now or at one time were slaves. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire looked vastly different than slavery as we think of it. When we think of slavery, of course, we think about the history of our country and that that dark time where, where we we owned people and used people as, as as cattle and as livestock, and it was a terrible time. That's not what slavery was. Now, people did have to work. But if you were in slavery, you were in slavery for a reason. You were in debt. You had something to pay. You owed someone something. Maybe you chose to go into slavery because it was the only way you could provide for yourself and your family. But if you were in slavery, there was hope to get out. Of course, in in America... In the 1800s, if you wanted to get out of slavery, you had to go on, you know, go on the Underground Railroad and hope to get north before someone caught you. And this time, if you wanted to get out of slavery, someone could pay your ransom. Someone would go to your slave master and say, I would like to purchase them out of slavery. What is the, what is the ransom for them? They would set a price and you would pay that price And when you paid that price, they were free from bondage. So you could be purchased out of, you could be redeemed out of slavery. So you could pay a ransom to bring people out. What Paul is telling us here is before we were believers, before we were Christians, before we put our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to our flesh. The Bible says we served us. We served our desires, our flesh, our sin nature. Sin was our master, and we did whatever sin said to do. Jesus said this in John 8, 34. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever commits sin is the servant. The Greek word there literally means slave is the servant or slave to sin. Sin before Christ was our master. We were purchased out of slavery by Christ for a price. That's what it means when we say we are redeemed. You were a slave to sin, and Jesus came, and you didn't do anything for it. You didn't earn it, or deserve it, or were worthy of it, but Jesus paid the price to purchase you or to redeem you out of slavery. And the price for your sin, the ransom that was required to purchase you out of slavery, to redeem you out of bondage of sin and death, is seen throughout the Bible and it is high. The Bible says in Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death. God says the ransom that was placed on you to purchase you and redeem you out of sin and slavery was death. That was the price that had to be saved. We are slaves to sin, and the only way to redeem ourselves is through death. But we must be redeemed by someone dying in our place. Here's what this tells us. Sin is not cheap. Sin's not small. Sin, before you were saved and after you are saved, sin has a great cost on it. When I graduated high school, see, the problem that most of us have is we don't, we don't understand the cost that it really took to buy us out of sin. When I graduated high school, I had a, a scholarship, a one-year scholarship to go to college. My entire college was paid for, my, my tuition was paid, my, my books were paid. It was, a, it was a community college and I was living with my brother, uh, which was a dumb idea, but, so I didn't have my board. But I could go to college for the first year, completely tuition-free, everything paid for. I went to college, I registered for classes, I got all my books, and I wasted it. I didn't understand the value of, Or the cost of what I had. So I wasted it. I didn't go to class. I eventually failed out because I I missed so much much school. And I I wasted what I had because I didn't understand the value of it. When I went back to college to get my engineering degree. And then later back to get my Bible degree. I paid for every bit of it. So I went every single day. Because I understood the value of it. Because I was paying for it. So I went to class, I studied hard, I passed all the tests, I did all the work. I worked hard because I understood the value of it. Understanding the cost of redemption changes how we care about redemption. We have taken the cost of our redemption for granted. Because we didn't have to die. We didn't have to shed our blood we take it for granted. Look what John MacArthur said. He said, sin is man's captor and slave owner and it demands a price or release. Death is the price that had to be paid for man's redemption from sin. In God, we have redemption from our sins. God has paid the price to redeem us out of slavery. And he did it, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we even asked for it. He did it because he chose us and he loves us. But how did he redeem us? Look again. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Those are important words, but the first two are important too. Those first two words, "in whom?" says literally mean "in him. In him we have redemption through his blood. It isn't our good works. They give us redemption, and it's not our church membership that gives us redemption. It's not our performance that gives us redemption. It's not our environment or our parents or our family or anything that gives us redemption. It is only in him that we have redemption, and we only have it through his blood. The more we are aware of our sinfulness, the more we become dependent on him. We bring nothing to buy ourselves out of sin. We only have redemption in him and through his blood. But how can blood redeem us? Why is it so important? You know, we also know the song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But think about it. does can blood really cleanse? You know, you don't pour blood in your washing machine to make your whites white blood can't clean like that, but the blood of Christ does clean us like that. The Old Testament sacrificial system showed us the need that we had to be cleansed. It showed us that we were not Clean, of course, during this time, if, once a year, of course, but sometimes there was a sin in the household or a sin in the family or a sin in the camp. They would bring an animal to the high priest and that animal would have his blood shed and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat and it would atone for their sins for a little while. It would cover their sins. And so the animals would would be a cut, their blood would be a covering or an atonement for sin. And this was a picture of what Jesus would do. It showed us the need to have someone shed their blood for us. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and the blood of sheep could never take away our sin. It says only the blood of Jesus can take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus can pay the price for our redemption. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. The blood of Christ was the payment that needed to be paid for our sin. God became flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, was arrested for crimes he didn't commit, put through a mock trial and, and convicted of crimes he was never even near guilty of. He was beaten and scourged and spit upon and had thorn, crown of thorns on him and his beard ripped out. He was marched up to Golgotha. He was nailed to a cross and he shed his blood and died to pay the price for our sin. While he was dead, the blood of Christ was sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. Then three days later, Jesus rose again, proving that God had accepted the payment of his death and burial and resurrection as payment for our sins. And he did it because he wanted us back. He did it to purchase us back from slavery. We are redeemed. Second thing we see in these verses not only are we redeemed, but we are forgiven. Look at the end of verse 7. <clears throat> the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness is a byproduct of redemption through His blood. Forgiveness of sins is what we get because we have redemption through His blood. So redemption from our sins also brings us forgiveness for our sins. Now, God's idea of forgiveness and our idea of forgiveness are vastly different. You hurt me. Maybe you say something that offends me. Maybe you steal something from me. Maybe you hurt me deeply. And you come to me honestly and humbly and say, I'm sorry. I'll forgive you. But I'm not, I'm following it away and remembering. Uh, they said they're sorry, but, and there's trust. That's broken. There's fellowship that's broken. I can say, well, I forgive you. But we, we don't forget. And we always remember. And even if 10 years go by and someone, someone who hurt us severely comes back into our life. And we may, we may say, oh, we forgave them. But we always have that remembrance of, but this is how they hurt me. See, God doesn't do that. God forgives in a completely different way. When God forgives... He chooses not to remember our sins. Look at Jeremiah 31-34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Does he say, I'm going to forgive and forget? He doesn't forget. He can't forget. He's God. He knows everything. He can't forget, but he chooses not to remember. Hebrews 8-12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 10, 17. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God, he doesn't forget your sins. He chooses not to remember them. Say, what does that mean? What's the difference? What it means is, he chooses not to hold your sins against you. Again, someone hurts me, they forgive, I forgive them, but I always hold it against them a little bit. I'm always a little you know, well, I can't, can't trust them completely because of what they did. I know they said they're sorry, but still, that's just who. I don't want them to do it again. God chooses not to hold our sins against us. That is biblical forgiveness, and that only comes from God. We can't, we can't forgive that. We can try. But it's going to take a lot of Holy Spirit to help us to live that way. The Bible, David says, that he David says he puts our sins in the depths of the sea. You ever lost something in water, like in, in, in a lake or in the ocean? I lost a wedding ring years ago in the ocean. We were me and April were at the beach and we were swimming and my wedding ring fell off. That's when it could come off. Uh, see, that's why that's why I got big fat fingers now. I just want to keep my ring on. And so my ring came off. And I was, I was only in like, you know, two or three feet of, 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 of water with the surf. But as soon as it fell off, it was gone. And I could never find it again. I lost Smith Mountain Lake. I lost my wallet with my ID, my credit cards, my debit card, and a couple hundred bucks of cash in it. Because I jumped off the, the, the boat with my wallet in my pocket. When I came out, I remembered, man, I dove down with goggles on trying to find that thing. But you can't find nothing in Smith Mountain Lake. It's just filthy. You lose something in a lake or in in the ocean, and it's, it's gone forever. But David doesn't just say, oh, he just chunks your sins in the sea. He says he puts them in the depths of the sea. There are places in the ocean that are deeper than Mount Everest is high. There are places in the ocean that man will never get to. It's just too deep. There's too much pressure. There's stuff down there. Say, what's down there? Your sins. And God says, I'm going to put them there, and I'm going to choose not to remember them, and I'm going to just put them behind my back. God has put our sins where they will never be found again. But then he says, we are forgiven according to his riches of his grace. The word riches there means to lavish upon. Here's what Paul's saying. You are forgiven so much that God is lavishing his grace upon you. He is just lavishing you with his grace and his mercy. God's grace is all over your life today. And look, I know some of us, we've got issues, we've got problems, we've got trials we're going through, and it's easy to look at our problems and say, "Wow, well, why God doing this? But no matter what you're going through, God's grace is being lavished on your life today. That is who you are. You are redeemed, you are forgiven, and finally... We have been given God's perspective. Look at verse number eight. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which we have purposed in himself. When we think about a mystery, we think about something that we can't know. You know, we, we like mystery drum novels or mystery movies, and a mystery is something we just, we can't know. You know, there's this... Uh, Podcast I like to listen to. Um, it's uh, it's a it's called conspiracy theories. And these the people that host the podcast they're not conspiracy theorists, but they talk about conspiracy theories and they give you the conspiracy theories and what some you know they give all oh, here's four or five different explanations for it. Uh, one of them, one I most recently listened to was Amelia Earhart. You know what what happened to Amelia Earhart? She just she just vanished. You know, there's some theories that she, which is probably most probable, she just crashed and sunk to the bottom of the ocean where your sins are, and they ain't never going to find her. Uh, another uh, theory is she was captured by the Japanese and kept as a, prison, as a prisoner, but then she was released after the end of the war and came back to America and started a new life because she was actually a spy. I don't think that one's true. Another one is she was abducted by aliens. That's, that's probably the most probable but so they tell you all these different theories. And, and one of the theories is the Great Pyramids. How do they build the Great Pyramids? You know, just the technology to do what they did, when they did it, it just, they can't figure out how it existed. And the main theory is, again, aliens. Don't know why, but aliens did it. And so we, we look at these things, Where's I going with this? They <laughs> have no idea where going with this. Oh, anyway, mysteries, anyway. Mysteries, there we go, mysteries. All right, so we may never know how the pyramids really were built. I mean, I know how they were built. The Egyptians had a lot of slaves and, you know, logs. But we may never understand what really happened to Amelia Earhart. You may never know why it takes your wife three hours to go to Target to get a loaf of bread. These are mysteries that may never be discovered. But God doesn't withhold the mystery of his will from us. God wants us to know the truth of the word of, of, the word of God. God wants us to know his will for our lives. So here's what Paul is saying. The more you walk with God, the more you get to know God, the more you understand God. The more you understand why he does what he does. The more you walk with God, the more you spend time with God, the more you realize who you are in God. Romans 8:28 begins to make a lot of sense. where all things work together for good. You say, why is it? What's the good? We just trust. We understand that God's in control, and God's doing what, he want, what He's doing for His will. We see the more you draw near Him you see his will revealed in his word, his will for the world, his will for his kingdom, and his will for you. As we walk with him, the things in the Bible begin to make sense. The Old Testament sacrifices begin to make sense. We see God's grand plan of salvation and his plan of redemption for us, and we are able to see things from God's point of view. God says, because you are in him, we have God's perspectives. These are not things that we hope to have one day. These aren't things that we're working to achieve one day. These are things that if we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, these are things we are and we have today. You are redeemed. You're not being redeemed you are redeemed, you are forgiven. You're not hoping to be forgiven, you are forgiven and you do have God's perspective today.